Well, good morning. Today marks six months in the pulpit here. And so I'm excited that we're finally able to start the book of Colossians. I'm thankful that we're at that point. Um, it is indeed something I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Um, John Calvin indicates that the book of Colossians is an epistle that distinguishes the true Christ from the fictitious one. We've spent the last, spent four and a half of the last six months at least, discovering the true church as found in Revelation 2 and 3, seeing Christ's depiction and Christ's assessment of the church. But you cannot have the true church without the true Christ. And so today we embark through Colossians on an excursion that I would say not only exalts Christ, but explains the Christian life. And so therefore, we begin this morning at the very beginning with verse 1. And I place before you a text that examines not only God's character of faithfulness, but God's call to faithfulness. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message I have called three degrees of faithfulness in the Christian life. And as always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. And as we read these verses, it is my prayer that the study of these truths will overwhelm us with God's grace, that we would be softened and moldable before our God. So beginning in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll just read the first two verses. It says simply, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You may be seated. William Barclay writes, It is not until a man finds his faith opposed and attacked that he really begins to think out the implications of that faith. He continues, It is not until the church is confronted with some dangerous heresy that she begins to realize the riches and wonders of orthodoxy. The faithfulness of the Christian is not revealed when he or she is least challenged, but when the Christian is most challenged. If you want to know where your convictions lie, you only need to look at your response during your most trying moments in life. We live in a world that routinely opposes our faith. Not only will our claims to faithfulness be challenged and tested, but our allegiance to anything and anyone but Christ will be demanded. Society uses the latest trends to entice us away from our commitment to God's will. Through payments and programs, governments attempt to literally purchase our allegiance to their work, even when it's contrary to God's work. People will seek to persuade us to transfer our loyalty from them or from God's son to them. Even our circumstances attack our, our faithfulness to God. They try to convince us that we must be faithful to ourselves and not to him. Competition for your devotion will never cease, but it will continue as an ongoing conflict, just as part of the Christian life in living in a fallen world. Something will always seek to draw your attention from Christ. The Colossian, Colossian church experienced this firsthand. Paul's writing to the Colossians comes as he's received word about their current situation. 
Whether it was intentional or not, we don't know, but it is clear that someone was misleading the church with some sort of philosophy, as Paul would call it in Colossians 2.8. We can't even have certainty of what this exact philosophy or this teaching was. It simply appears to be an early form of Gnosticism, which was a form or an early teaching that basically said that there was a higher level of knowledge for those who were more spiritual. It's something that John will confront later on in the same century. This false teaching in Colossians, though, appears, appears to syncretize or mix the early foundations of Judaism with the, with the secular ideologies of the day, something we face today even. What happened is it clearly became a list of rules and regulations that detracted from God's grace and deviated from Christ's work. Clearly, though, if you read the text, if you read the book of Colossians, the majority of the church has not allowed itself to be a casualty to this, to this heresy because Paul still refers to them as holy and as faithful, calling them brothers in our text this morning. But never does he call them to repent from the heresy, only to retreat from it. John warns in 2 John 1.7 that many deceivers have gone out into the world. In the same passage, he then urges the believers to be on guard and to not receive any false teachers. Paul not only offers a similar assessment in his epistles, but to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he offers an assessment of how to identify false teachers. The book of Colossians 2, then, is written against those who would seek to diverge from God's truth. And in a typical fashion, Paul utilizes the first half of his writing, the first part of the book of Colossians, to declare doctrine, teaching truthful theology in order to denounce the false teachings that are infiltrating the church. But then the second half of the book is to declare duty, exclaiming or examining what are the practical implications of that doctrine? How does this play out in our lives? If you read Paul's letters, this is a typical format that he follows for most of them. The book of Colossians is an epistle encouraging faithfulness to Christ, especially when others are enticing faithlessness to Christ. And so I want you to note first the faithfulness of individuals in verse 1. The text simply declares, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. The primary expression of faithfulness is a personal expression of faithfulness. What we believe about God is expressed by our dedication to God. A high, exalted perspective of God generates a high, exalted commitment to him, a passion for God leads to a passionate dedication to God's glory. And a sanctified view of God will lead to a sanctified service to God's will. Who you are, what you do, how you conduct yourself, and how you treat others, and how you behave towards them are an expression of who you think God is. Using a typical Greek introduction for his day, for letters specifically, Paul writes and Paul introduces, and the first line of Colossians introduces us to two individuals, two individuals that have been called and consecrated for the Lord's work. These two men have come to us commended for their service and for their sacrifice to God's, on God's behalf. With the first word, the text announces the first person, Paul. 
The designation as apostle not only establishes his authority, but it gives his credentials because he's about to embark on a confrontation against false teaching. And by saying, I am an apostle of Christ, he's giving his credentials and his authority, saying, I can indeed confront this. Few people would exemplify complete commitment more than Paul. If service and sacrifice are the defining characteristics of faithfulness, then Paul's testimony of fidelity is exceptional. Consider the willing sacrifices that Paul has made in order to place himself into service for the Lord. First, Paul sacrifices position. When we first meet Paul in the book of Acts, he maintains a position of authority, secular authority, I'll even clarify. He is known for his stance against Christians, and he has become a leader in this anti-Christian movement. So notorious as Paul in this realm that at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 and Acts 8, the garments are laid at Paul's feet, and they seek Paul's approval for what took place, and Paul gave it. But Paul exchanges this position of influence for a position of integrity becoming an apostle, one who was sent for the purposes of God. 1 Corinthians 1.17 indicates that Paul was sent by Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 1-10 through 10 that he was set apart by Christ. He was called to be an apostle, to preach the gospel. Romans 1.1 asserts the same calling, again saying that he was called to be an apostle. Certainly, the Christian world, an apostle carried more than a title. This was a role of great dignity and great authority, as one who spoke on behalf of Christ. But the secular world would not recognize this title. They would not recognize this position. The secular world has little use for an apostle. In their eyes, this was not a promotion, but a demotion. But Paul willingly responded to God's call exchanging a temporal position for an eternal one. People often define a person not by who they are, but by what they are. A person's intelligence, integrity, and importance are all derived from the position that one person holds in society. It is not by chance that the one question, the very first question we ask after learning a person's name is, what do you do? Or where do you work? It is from this question that we begin our initial assessment of who that person is. When someone says teacher, we think smart. When someone says lawyer, we think rich. When someone says doctor, we think rich and smart. <laughs> but the judgments go further, and society begins to label that person. A farmer is conservative, a professor is liberal, a stay-at-home mom must be religious, and a general laborer must lack motivation. And then finally, the assessment gets more personal, trying to decide based on what this person does, does he or she have value for me? Intellectually, we must know that those judgments, based on position alone, rarely prove reliable. Perhaps some of you heard your own position mentioned in that list, but then would respond, that's not how I would describe myself. That alone should demonstrate how absurd it is to determine who someone is simply by the position or the title that they hold. Even more important, scripture tells us that the body is made of many parts, 
Each part fulfills the role. It doesn't matter what position a person holds within the body of Christ. Each person is strategically placed for the advancement of God's will, God's word, and God's work. Reading through the Pauline epistles will reveal that Paul had accepted his position in Christ. The more he rejected his position in the world, the more he accepted that position. He writes in Philippians 3.8, saying, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I think we can say with confidence that when Paul sacrificed his position in the world, he began to realize that it was not a sacrifice at all because he had learned one very important lesson. It's not who society wants me to be, but who God wants me to be. The most important position you and I hold is not who we are in the workforce, but who we are in God's will. Are we obedient to what he has called us to do? Are we living out his will? Frequently, though, to set aside position is also to set aside one's prominence. And Paul sacrifices both. Certainly before he was well known in the Christian world for his teaching, he was well known in the secular world for his treachery. He was vehemently opposed to Christians. Paul became a standout for persecution, even if he himself didn't exercise a judgment. Not only did he stand by at the stoning of Stephen, but he sought permission for a special commission to round up Christians. He's known for his opposition, and he's rewarded for that opposition. But now Paul writes from prison. We know that from Colossians 1, 24, 4, 3, and 10, just to give you a few verses. That this letter is written while Paul is in the midst of prison. And that prominence that Paul had is now lost. He's a nobody in a jail cell. His prominence, his position that he once had, cannot save him from that. And it definitely can't save him from eternity. But he's already set all of that aside, all for the sake of serving God, the same God that he used to persecute. Status is given priority in society. Even with the Christian culture, much attention is given to celebrity pastors, prioritizing those few over the many. But if there's a prominent lesson to note, it's that a person does not have to be important to be influential for Christ. Few would know the name of Dr. William Leslie, and I don't know his background. I don't know where he stood theologically. But the story goes that he was a Canadian who undertook several works on the continent of Africa as a missionary. Finally, he began to settle down in the, as a medical missionary amongst the Yancey people, which is in modern-day Democratic Republic of the Congo. And throughout his entire service with his wife in Africa, the Leslies, the family, encountered all kinds of problems, all kinds of trials, both physical and spiritual. At one point, they even had the devastation of a hurricane that came through and ripped its way through their area the night before one of their children was born. After 17 years alone, or 17 years along what is known as the Quilu River, a falling out occurred with tribal leaders, and it ended their ministry. Eventually, reconciliation did occur, but they knew it was time for them to return to North America. Nine years after that, he died. In 2010, so 70, 80 years later, another group made a trek to the same area into the jungle. 
and following a two and a half hour flight, they hiked a mile and then got into dugout canoes in order to ride across to the other side of a river. And after arriving on the other side, they would hike another 10 miles and then finally reached the very first people group of this area. They were doing a scouting trip for the gospel, trying to determine about planting churches in this area, doing a tribal work. But upon their arrival, upon exploration of this area, they discovered something incredible. The spread over 34 miles was already a network of churches. Every single one of those churches would trace its beginning to Dr. Leslie. He died without knowing this and knowing the impact of his own work for the cause of Christ. It's not great prominence that God uses, but great deference. Great deference before our God. It is the one who is willing to yield himself to the great calling of God that will be used of God. But not only does Paul give up his position and his prominence, perhaps the most difficult area for any of us to give up is our own preferences, our own priorities. Yet know what the verse says. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. The position that Paul now finds himself is not by his own ambition, but by God's authority. He does not seek this out. Acts 9.15, God indicates that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Galatians 1.1 reads, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul's motivation and movement are now the result of God's calling upon his life. Last week, we discussed Paul's plans for ministry, looking at Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 15. And we saw that Paul clearly had a vision for the gospel and how to spread it amongst the world. And if you've forgotten that message or if you want to hear it, you can go to our website and see it there or hear it there. But that vision that we discussed wasn't merely a part of Paul's desired, desired plan and his desire to do a strategic, strategic initiative on his own merit. He was simply fulfilling God's will, not his own. Paul does not seek to fulfill his own preferences. He does not plan according to his own priorities. Paul has exchanged all that he wants for all that God wants. Sometimes this is a call of the Christian life. Setting aside our own personal plans, initiatives, desires, and so on for the sake of God's glory and the good of God's people. Finally, Paul sacrifices his own pride. Paul had power. Paul had prominence. And no doubt, everything that he had accomplished before Christ and after Christ were sources of pride or could be sources of pride for him. But the acceptance of God's call meant that Paul didn't elevate himself. Instead, he sought to humble himself. He was not making himself out to be greater amongst the people, but rather the least of all servants on behalf of God. To the Corinthians, he writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. In Ephesians 3.8, he calls himself the least of all saints, the least of all people within the church, within the body of Christ. That is the lowest position 
within the body of Christ. But then he goes further in 1 Timothy 1.15, calling himself the chief among sinners. Paul has just described him as the lowest person of everybody on earth. He's never short on humility, and never do we get the sense that his humility is false. One of the most difficult parts of character for a person is to abandon pride. Pride is the most prevalent destroyer of the body of Christ. And unchecked, pride will allow us to assert our wants over the needs of others. It creates division and dissension. Andrew Murray is bold when he says, the chief mark of counterfeit holiness is its lack of humility. But his cutting words, his biting words don't stop there. They cut deeper. Listen to what he says. Many Christians fear and flee and seek deliverance from all that would humble them. At times when they may pray for humility, but in their heart of hearts, they pray even more to be kept from the things that would bring them to that place. Quite simply, what he's saying is that the very things that God would give us to humble us, to bring about humility, are the very things we reject and ask God to take away from our lives. But look at Paul's attitude in 2 Corinthians 12 when he's facing some sort of difficulty and some sort of trial. Beginning in verse 7, he writes, To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, <clears throat> excuse me, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I contend with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We only need to look at ourselves through the eyes of God to humble ourselves. Had it not been for the work of Christ, our sins would remain a permanent blemish, a permanent stain that removes us from God's presence. Years ago, after what had been a really intense deacon meeting at our church, the men gathered their belongings, and we left very late into the evening. And outside, I began a discussion with one of the older men, a friend of mine. And he said, I just know that I'm the worst kind of sinner. And in my vain attempt to provide peace, I responded by saying simply, you can't know that. You cannot possibly qualify your sin over anyone else's sin. And then he said something I've never forgotten, nearly 14, 15 years later. You're exactly right. I can't. But I know this. If I were the only man on earth, Christ still would have had to die. It was F.B. Meyer who wrote, the only hope for decreasing self is an increasing Christ. Paul was an apostle by God's will, not his own. He became an authorized emissary for God, sanctioned to labor on the Lord's behalf. And Paul sought to expand the Lord's kingdom as he was called to do. And as such, he freely sacrificed his position, his prominence, his preferences, his priorities, and his pride. Based on what we read in scripture, I'm certain that Paul would hardly call it a sacrifice. 
Permit me to ask you this then. What are we willing to give up to serve our Lord? We live more comfortably, more freely, more effortlessly than Paul ever did. Paul was willing to forsake all, and yet, I can speak of myself here, I am unwilling to forsake a lot of times the slightest inconvenience. But let me challenge you with this then. Are we not also authorized emissaries of God's? 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul refers to believers as ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. The Great Commission endorses believers as God's workers. It authorizes them to make disciples on his behalf. The manner in which we exercise God's call may be very different than Paul's. Just simply based on the way God has gifted each of us individually. But the essence of the call is the same. We are called to a point of sacrificing our own position, our own prominence, our own priorities, our own preferences, and our own pride in order that we may diminish and he may flourish. But verse 1 doesn't just introduce us to Paul. The latter part of the verse also brings us to Timothy, our brother. Of all the people that Paul mentions in his letters, nobody is mentioned more frequently than Timothy. He is mentioned in the greetings of at least seven different letters. And while little is mentioned of his Greek father, we do know that Timothy had the influence, supposedly a godly influence, from his mother and his grandmother. But it wasn't until Paul's first missionary journey that Timothy is converted. And from that point forward, Timothy became a right-hand help to Paul. He was first selected to join Paul on his second missionary journey in Acts 17. We don't always know what, certain, what Timothy's role was within the church of Colossae, but it's likely he probably had some sort of relationship because we know that he served at Ephesus, which was only a short ways away. Like Paul, Timothy's service to God serves as an example of sacrifice. And I quickly just simply want to note two unique ways that Timothy sacrificed. First, Timothy sacrificed his words. This seems like an odd surrender. But remember what Paul encourages Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. It says the word. It is specific to the word of God. Ministry is not about what Timothy had to say, but about what God had to say. Timothy wasn't called to preach his own ideologies, his own speculations, his own opinions, but rather he was called to preach the word of God. When it comes to scripture, there's an attraction to manipulate God's word, to make it say what we want it to say. Sometimes there's a desire to misconstrue it, to support our positions. And at other times, we simply seek to ignore portions of it because it is too convicting, and we want to avoid that. But it is the truth of the word that believers are called to proclaim, because it is only by that truth that people are transformed and sanctified. But not only does he give up his words, he also forgoes his own will, much in the same way that Paul does. By the, the mention of his name, Timothy obviously is with Paul here, when Paul is imprisoned. And no doubt he's ministering to Paul. But more importantly, we see that he's ministering for Paul. Timothy is repeatedly relied upon for his faithful service. 
in Acts 19.22, he is sent to minister at Macedonia with Erastus. In Acts 18.5, he joins the planting of the Corinthian church. And according to 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul sends Timothy to Corinth to labor for a time in what appears to be a very delicate and very difficult situation. And of course, 1 Timothy 1.3, Timothy as a minister is entrusted to care for the church at Ephesus. Clearly, Timothy has become a trustworthy and helpful worker for the cause of Christ, willing to set aside any of his own determinations, his own decisions, and his own resolve in order to go where the work needed to be done. Like Paul, who was willing to sacrifice his own preferences and priorities, Timothy does the same. There's no inclination that Timothy wavered or sought to do his own thing or to avoid these responsibilities, but rather he seems to be very willing to go wherever he needed to, wherever Paul directed him if it meant fulfilling the Lord's commission. <coughs> What's interesting about Timothy's service and sacrifice is it was very different than Paul's. Paul's conversion was a miraculous event. It's recounted for us in Acts 9. And that brought Paul to a point of leadership and influence in the New Testament church. His authority and his apostleship were a direct result of God's works. But Timothy's directions were not received personally from God, but from Paul. He became Paul's assistant in ministry. In an effort to just distinguish the two, allow me to say it this way. That Paul served people by serving God, and Timothy served God by serving Paul. These unique calls meant that each one expressed faithfulness to God in a unique way. But nevertheless, each life is defined in such a way that both are known for being faithful, for being reliable workers for God's causes. Verse 1 simply reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Together, these two men represent unique depictions of what faithfulness looks like in the Christian life. Faithfulness is defined by service and by sacrifice, and these men sacrificed. For Paul, he let go of his powerful position, his prominence, his preferences and priorities, and his own pride. Timothy, I would say, was forced in one sense to give up his own words and his own will, but he did so willfully. Both did so readily and willingly, and if it meant that God would be glorified, we serve a God who remains faithful even when people are not, something that we'll even talk about later in verse 2. God proves us every day by the unmerited favor that he lavishes upon any of us at any given moment. Simply by sitting here this morning, we see that he has granted us breath and life sufficient enough to sustain us for this moment. He has made available to us his word in written form, because he seems to know that so many of us can't seem to memorize it. He has given us the ability to gather here this morning, that we may enjoy his presence. He has allowed us to be part of the body of Christ, that we may not only enjoy fellowship with one another, but that we may carry one another's burdens and function as a body of Christ. He has allocated his spirit, that we may have our hearts inclined towards him this morning. The Lord's faithfulness is evident by our mere presence here this morning. Even the examples of Paul and Timothy exemplify the Lord's faithfulness because it was never required to give us some sort of pattern or some sort of example for us of what it meant to be faithful. 
how is it that these men could so willingly give up all that they were for all that God is? Because their identity was in Christ. Position, prominence, prominence, preference, pride, and so on. It didn't matter because everything was bound to, they weren't bound to any of that. They were bound to Christ. And all of that is fulfilled in Christ. Paul's sacrifice of his position in the world allowed him to find a permanent position in eternity that was tied to Christ. His sacrifice of pride was replaced with a desire to see God exalted instead of himself. Timothy's willingness to forsake his own word did not matter because God's word was far greater than his own. Our faithfulness to Christ is tied to our identity in Christ. If you want to know your faithfulness to God, and look at your sacrifice for God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning grateful that we can advance to your word, grateful that we can have your word before us. Indeed, you're a faithful God who's provided for our needs. Even in those moments when we don't recognize, one, what our needs are, or we don't recognize what it is we truly need we think we know but you really do know lord and father we're just grateful that you've given us all things to sustain us sustain us so that we may draw closer to you that our walk may be conformed to you and conform to your will father we thank you that as we look and advance in the word this morning that we have these examples of two faithful men that we can see what faithfulness means and most importantly, Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness. We're thankful that it's not dependent upon our faithfulness, but rather that you remain committed to us, Lord, for your glory and for our good. Father, I pray that we wouldn't take this for granted. Father, work in our hearts, soften us. May we be humbled before you. And may we give you praise at each moment for who you are and the work you do faithfully in every moment of our lives. We commit this time to you in our holy, your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.